listening to the Sermons Podcast for Ottawa Baptist Church. We pray that you will be blessed and encouraged by this week's message. There's no other story in Scripture that's referenced more than the Exodus. If you look at the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, you can look at the history of Israel through Kings and Chronicles, you can look at the books of the prophets and Psalms, all the way into the New Testament, the epistles, In Revelation, we have these judgments that are being poured out upon the earth that are intended to remind us of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. When we think about the Exodus, it's about God preserving his people, having attentive ears to the cries of those he calls his own, demonstrating his power, forming a people as he takes them into his promises and into the land that he has for them a place of rest, a place of bounty, a place of harvest, a hopeful future. And the themes of Exodus are inexhaustible. There's a reason it's the most referenced event in Scripture. And the Exodus is still meaningful to us today. Here we are in New Zealand, over 16,000 kilometers from Egypt, over 4,000 years removed from the story itself, a different time, a different age, a different culture, and yet the story still holds meaning for us. For the next several weeks, we will go through and highlight a few stories that we find in Exodus and how those stories can shape us as followers of Jesus Christ. But before we look at the Exodus story, we have to understand a little bit about the setup. And the setup story for Exodus is the story of Joseph. In Genesis, we have about 14 chapters that are dedicated to the life of Abraham, six chapters dedicated to Isaac, Roughly 10 dedicated to Jacob, and about 13 that are dedicated to Joseph. And in Genesis 37, we open up with the story to find that Joseph, the 17-year-old boy, this teenager, is loved by his father. And he is given this special robe. And some might suggest that this robe was given to Joseph because it would mark him as the great inheritor of Jacob's estate that he was in a privileged position, which was a little bit unusual because he was not the oldest son. But regardless of all of the meanings within Jacob's giving of Joseph this special garment, this robe, we know that Joseph was definitely favored. Well, Joseph, as a teenager, begins to have these dreams, and we won't jump into the dreams this morning. But in the dreams, they are interpreted to mean that Joseph will rise to power and all of his older brothers will bow down in honor and reverence to him. And in Genesis 37, his brothers are not very happy about this. They, they look at him after he shares the dream. And he says, you think you will be our king, don't you? Do you think that you will actually reign over us? Well, after some time, as the story goes, Joseph's brothers go and they look for places to feed the flock. And they go several days journey away from home. And Jacob calls Joseph and says, Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers and then report back to me. And Joseph, being a good son, says, yes, I will do that. And as Joseph makes his way to where his brothers are feeding the flocks, his brothers look at him and say, here comes that dreamer. And look how it escalates. Come on, let's kill him. We'll just tell dad that a wild animal consumed him Let's be done with him. Reuben, the oldest brother, says, let's not do this. 
Let's just take Joseph and instead of shedding blood, why don't we just throw him in an empty well or an empty cistern? And the Bible tells us that Reuben was trying to de-escalate the situation a little bit, but that later on his plan was come and to come and actually save Joseph. And so they agreed to Reuben's plan. But at some point, while Joseph is in the, we- in, in, in the well and, and his brothers are there, Reuben is not around and they see a band of Ishmaelites, slave traders, and they decide, let's just rid ourselves of Joseph. And so they sell Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Now comes the cover-up. What are they going to tell dad about their beloved boy? The brothers killed the young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood, and they sent the beautiful robe to their father with a message. Dad, look what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? And Jacob is distraught. His precious Joseph is dead. Now consider this picture. Here is Joseph who has a future inheritance waiting for him. He's hated by his brothers, betrayed and sold to the Ishmaelites. And his father thinks he is dead. This is the end of the road for Joseph. There's no search party coming after him. His inheritance is gone. His status is gone. Promise is gone. Home is gone. Future gone. And now he stands in a slave auction, hearing the bids, wondering where he will go next. Your slave cut off from your people, your land, your God. Joseph is purchased by the household of Potiphar, who's an Egyptian officer. And we read this in Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. A couple of verses later, we see that things are going so well, the blessings that Joseph is bringing into the household, that Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of his entire household. And as it turns out, Joseph is also a hottie. So Potiphar's wife starts looking at Joseph and his strong jawline and his six-pack abs. And as he's walking around the house, she she becomes lustful in her attention towards Joseph. And day after day, the scripture tells us that she puts pressure on Joseph. Come, be intimate with me, and he resists her. It gets so bad, the story tells us that she, Potiphar's wife, grabs Joseph's robe and says, now you will not deny me. And he wiggles his way out of the coat, leaves it in her hands, and takes off. Potiphar's wife doesn't handle continuous rejection well. In that moment, she decides that she is going to fabricate a lie, and she calls the household together, saying, look, this Hebrew slave, he tried to take advantage of me, and I have proof. Look at his coat that he left behind. Joseph needs to stop wearing coats. His dad's giving him a coat. Potiphar's giving him this coat. When his birthday rolls around again, he should just have a no-coat policy. He's finding himself in serious trouble. And so Potiphar comes, hears the story, and obviously sides with his wife and throws Joseph in prison. What does Genesis 39, 21 tell us? But the Lord was with Joseph in prison. 
And he showed him his faithful love. And in the next verse, before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in prison. The Lord was with Joseph. Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended Pharaoh, and so they are thrown into prison. We don't know exactly what they did. We don't know what the cupbearer did. The chief baker probably tried to serve Pharaoh Pavlova. I don't know, probably really upset him, said, no, to prison you go. Gross Pavlova. And while they are there, the warden puts the baker and the chief cupbearer into the care of Joseph. They are in his household. And while they're there, they have these disturbing dreams. And Joseph recognizes that they're troubled. And they tell him about these dreams. And Joseph says, why don't you tell me the dream and see if I have an interpretation for you? And so they be, the, the chief cupbearer tells him the dream. And Joseph goes, okay, okay, I understand. Yes, this is the interpretation. You will be restored to your place in Pharaoh's court. And so the chief baker begins to share his dream. And Joseph is sitting there listening. I don't know how to tell you this, man. This is not going to work out good for you. You should have never served that pavlova. Your life is going to be taken. And as it turns out, the dreams come true. And Joseph tells the chief cupbearer, listen, when, when you go to Pharaoh, remember me. Tell him about me. I, I am a Hebrew slave. I was kidnapped unjustly, and now I am in prison for a crime I didn't commit. And the chief cupbearer is like saying, yeah, you're my bestie, man. We're, I'll never forget you. And then he forgets, whether accidentally or purposefully. And now Joseph is waiting, waiting. A couple of years later, Pharaoh has the infamous dream. And he's deeply disturbed and troubled. And there's no one in Egypt that can interpret the dream for him. And it's in this moment the cupbearer goes, I know a guy. There was a guy when I was in prison who interpreted my dream, and it came to pass. And Pharaoh says, send for him at once. Joseph appears before Pharaoh, interprets the dream, and he tells him, Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of good harvest, seven years of plenty. But after that, there will be seven years of incredible famine. Pharaoh discerns that what Joseph is saying is true. In Genesis 41, 38, he says, can we find anyone like this man who is obviously filled with the Spirit of God? And in 41, 41, Pharaoh says to Joseph, here, I put you in charge of the land of Egypt. Joseph is now second in command of a new household. And we'll pause there in the summary of Joseph's life. Out of all the things that we could discuss this morning, this is what I want to draw our attention to this morning. And it's this. Joseph was faithful in the household of Potiphar. He was faithful in the household of the prison, and the prison warden and his responsibilities, and he was faithful in the household of Egypt. Let's look at each of these briefly. Joseph's faithfulness in the household of Potiphar. Remember, Joseph's situation is not ideal. He's been ripped from his land, his inheritance, and his family. But we're reminded that the Lord was with him, and Potiphar recognizes this, that God blesses this Egyptian 
who is not a believer in Yahweh at all, all for the sake of Joseph being present within the household. We think about this for a moment. We know the story. God certainly knows the story. There will be a time where Joseph will come to power and all of the, and the, the covenant family of God would be spared in the land of Egypt. And Joseph is the setup for that. But there's one problem. Joseph doesn't know that. He doesn't know that he's the setup. From his perspective, all things are lost. And can we humanize Joseph for a moment? Because sometimes we, we think of G, you know, people in, in the Bible and we think of like the flannel graph characters or we think of these animated figures. Can, can we humanize Joseph just for a moment? What language is he now forced to learn? What customs is he now forced to adopt? There's no way, no place for him to worship the God of his ancestors. When he lays down at night, what thoughts are running through his head? Is he dreaming of his homeland? Is he thinking about his father, his brothers? How many of you are immigrants to New Zealand? You moved here because you wanted a better life for your household. Right? And you had that choice. And that choice was a good thing. But let's humanize Joseph just for a minute. For a minute. Let's close our eyes. All of you immigrants that are highly, highly favored of the Lord. You just think New Zealand is good. And you've started a new life here, but it's just not home. So how often do you, do you think of the family and the relationships back home? How, just think for a moment, the incredible food. Is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it your auntie? Is it, is it your grandmother who is just the star cook and used to gather around that table and have laughs and good food and enjoy family? What is it that you miss about the culture as you sit and think about home? What about the friendships? What about speaking your love language, the language of your homeland? There you don't have to worry about translating anything. You can just sit there and speak freely and everyone understands and you can communicate what is in your mind and in your heart. Now open your eyes. Everyone's super sad right now. <laughs> You're thinking, maybe this wasn't a good exercise. You know, in my mind, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking of Sonny's barbecue, sliced pork, Texas toast, sweet tea, and football on the big screen. And we think of home because we're human. These are the thoughts that we have, and these are the thoughts that Joseph would have had himself. And Joseph just doesn't make best of the, you know, make best of the situation. He actually decides, I'm going to be faithful in the household of my master, of Potiphar. And God overshadows everything that Joseph does and elevates him to a place of prominence. Potiphar's wife desires Joseph, but he's faithful. As this teenager, he says, I'm not going to run around behind the scenes and in the shadows. I'm not going to betray the confidence of my master. I won't seek the thrills of having an affair with the boss man's spouse. I'm not going to do it. I am going to honor God. And what's the result? A prison sentence, a new household, a new prison garment, prison food, surrounded by those who are actually guilty of doing something. But remember, it's all a setup. Genesis 39, 20. So he, meaning Potiphar, took Joseph and threw him into the prison. Now the author of Genesis is giving us an indication of what's happening here. Because the author says, 
where the king's prisoners are held, and there Joseph remained. The author is letting us know something's going to happen. This is a setup, and what do we know about the story? In prison, who does Joseph meet? The cupbearer and the baker. In Joseph's mind, prison looks like a backward step. How can being faithful to God lead me to this place? This isn't the natural progression of one who follows wholeheartedly the ways of God. Joseph is done. This is it. Have you ever felt like you've taken a backward step in life? After doing something with integrity and with faithfulness, you've looked at God and said, God, what, what's going on here? Is, is this my reward? Is this how you treat your servants? Is this how you treat your people? And you start adopting this attitude. Hey, God, um, I just want to draw your attention that I'm fulfilling my side of the bargain here. Um, and it doesn't look like you're doing the same. And we move into this place where there's this irreverent position where we feel that God owes us something because we've been five-star children in our own eyes. And we look and say, God, I, just something isn't add up, adding up here. When, when I think about cause and effect, I look at the cause and I'm not really agreeing with the effect. How is this my reward? And what's amazing is that situational hardship in our life will cause this attitude to come about within our hearts. When we face that situational hardship, because no longer do we view our relationship with God as the gift that it is? Because we want to pay attention to the byproduct of what we think the relationship with God should bring for us. We don't take into consideration the setup, the setup that's necessary for God doing what he desires to do. And we forget that we sing those songs where we say, God, I'll follow you no matter what. We pray those prayers. God, I will trust in you no matter what. And when our words are tested and God takes us up on our claims, we get angry. We are tested. And God says, do you really mean that? Will you really follow me no matter what? Will you, will you really serve me no matter what you experience? And it's in those moments, sometimes of frustration, when we're tested, we can either crash and burn and walk away under the incredible weight of the trial that we're facing, or we can realign ourselves and remind ourselves, no, he is the gift. He is the gift. And in the process of growing in him, that process may cause you to be stripped bare. And is that because God is mean and cruel? Absolutely not. Sometimes in our hard-heartedness, sometimes in our stubbornness, in order for him to build us as he desires, he must strip what already exists. And that can be a painful experience. But in the end, it is the God of heaven who is building us and forming us and shaping us as his beloved people. And your trial may be a setup for a greater relationship with God, may be a setup for him to use you in a greater way in his kingdom. 
Do not grow discouraged. The Lord your God is with you. Back to Joseph, what do we see? Genesis 39, 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. And see, in this place, Joseph rises to power and switches household. Households is in the household of the prison. And the prison warden and Joseph is faithful in this household. This prison household is much different than Potiphar's household. And yet Joseph is faithful anyways. Eventually, he crosses paths with the cupbearer and the baker, and it's a divine appointment. Of course, there's another letdown, as there always seems to be. The cupbearer forgets Joseph, and now he's entering into another waiting phase. But here's the issue. When Pharaoh has the dream, the cupbearer knows exactly where to go to find Joseph. Why? He's in prison. He had to be there in order for God's will to be accomplished. And I bet that Joseph experienced some long days and nights questioning and wondering, what is the point of all this? And yet that attitude did not come through to the point that it affected his faithfulness to the household in prison. Prison is where Joseph needed to be, and in God's timing, things were going to change and change drastically. Joseph is called upon. Genesis 41, 14. Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the prison. You think of that transition and how fast that can occur? And there is Joseph hearing these words before Pharaoh. You will lead this nation. You will have Egypt as a household. And we humanize Joseph again. We think of the ache of his history. The betrayal, sold into slavery, falsely accused, stuck into prison. And to hear those words, you will be in charge of Egypt. You will be in charge of my court. And all of Egypt becomes Joseph's new household. Genesis 41, 42, Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand, placed it in Joseph's finger, and he dressed him in a new garment. This one Joseph will gladly take. He hung a gold chain around his neck. The authority that was taken from Joseph long ago is now exchanged for a greater authority, the authority over the land of Egypt. He was given a new name, a name that wasn't associated with imprisonment and false accusation. Genesis 41, 45, Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name. The dreams of being married and having a, fa a family, dreams that seemed dashed, were alive again. In the same verse, Pharaoh also gave Joseph a wife. And a few verses later, we hear that he is given two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And as the story goes, Joseph's family is pre preserved in the land of Egypt during a time of famine. And at the end, it all comes together. In the final chapter of Genesis, Joseph is there surrounded by his brothers, and they are worried that Joseph has vengeance in his heart. What is to become of the brothers that betrayed their brother so long ago? 
And Joseph looks at them and says, guys, you, you intended to harm me, but actually God intended it all for good. He brought me to the position so that I could save the lives of many people. Think about that. God brought me to the position. God was the one that was the setup that made sure that you wouldn't kill me, but that you would listen to Reuben and you would throw me in a well. And he's the one that made sure Reuben wasn't around so that I could be sold in the slave market. He was the one that made sure I ended up in Potiphar's house. He was the one who, when I resisted Potiphar, led me to prison. He was the one who sustained me there. He was the one who set up a divine appointment so that one day I would set my face in front of Pharaoh's face. I would interpret a dream and he would elevate me. He did it all. He orchestrated it. He is that powerful. And Joseph, I am that servant. And Joseph at the end recognizes God was there through it all. The story of Joseph is a necessary setup for Exodus. In a moment, we'll have some time to reflect, but I'll ask you now, what's your household? I'm not going to limit this to your biological family, but if you consider the household of Joseph, Potiphar's house, prison, Egypt, what's your household? And what do you need to be faithful to? If you're a teacher, maybe your household that you need to be faithful to is your classroom. If you run a small business, maybe your household is your employees. If you've been made redundant and you've taken a job outside of your profession for less pay, maybe God is bringing you to be faithful into a place of a new household. Maybe you're a grandparent and now you're finding yourself acting as a parent for one of your grandchildren and you're thinking, what is going on here? Maybe God is bringing you to a new household, to a new place to have influence, to a place to be faithful to the God of heaven as he works out his plan for you in your life. Whatever that household is, I want you to think, how can I be faithful to that household? Why am I in the place that I am in? What might God be up to right now in my life? And is this a part of a setup for something that he wants to do? I'll invite the team. They would come be prepared to close us in a song. We'll just throw up some of the reflection questions this morning for your consideration. Maybe we'll just take two or three minutes as the band plays. But as we sit here, where has God led you? In that time where you thought that you had been abandoned, in that time where you thought that you had been forgotten, there will come a day where you will potentially stand and look in hindsight and go, he was there the entire time. You know what the problem with hindsight is? It always happens in the future. And guess where we live? In the present. And so what do we do when we don't know what the future holds? We draw close to him. We remain faithful to the household that he has given us. And we trust and place our hope in him. Amen. Let's take a couple minutes just to reflect on these questions. And then Sinet and the team will close us in a final song. Thanks for checking out our sermons podcast today. For more information on Ottawa Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ottawabaptist.com.